0: You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Following your Bible today, I'm going to read from two different gospel accounts. There are those critics who will say, well, we have... Four stories of the resurrection and they conflict, they have conflicts. Uh, that is a really not a very smart statement because the conflicts are impossible to find. What we have are reports from human witnesses, just as if four different people saw any human event, they would notice different things. And I read you first from Matthew chapter 28, and then my main text from John chapter 20. We see some slightly different details put in place of the wonderful discovery of the resurrection of Christ, that great day in history. First, Matthew 28, 1 through 8. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb. "'Rolled back the stone and sat on it. "'His appearance was like lightning, "'and his clothes were white as snow. "'The guards were so afraid of him "'that they shook and became like dead men. "'The angel said to the women, "'Do not be afraid, "'for I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. "'He is not here. "'He is risen just as he said. "'Come and see.' The place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead, and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. And now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And this from John who himself was one of those witnesses, and he enters in the very account that he writes about here. John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John, and said... They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived. And went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. This is God's Word. May He be our instructor in it today. Father, we pray that as many times as we have heard these facts, might we hear them new. Might we know the power of the new life you came to bring in Christ. Amen. I suppose each and every one of us at some time in our lives, and if it hasn't happened to you yet, it will, experiences that occasion when something happens to you that somebody, maybe a family member or anyone else has predicted would be very likely to happen. But you didn't think it was serious. You didn't think it would ever happen to you. And so when it took place, you were entirely surprised and unprepared for it. In a negative light, we could think of a teenager awakening after a car crash, immobilized in a hospital, realizing all of a sudden that that tragic event had happened and maybe thinking that mom and dad always said, wear the seatbelt so you won't get in a crash. We all have the capacity to be shocked by events that we've been told would take place. Well, the resurrection of Jesus was predicted by the Old Testament. Jesus Himself in His ministry, we know, warned people in numerous ways that He not only, it wasn't just that He would probably rise, but the way He said it was, He must rise. And yet, I read this last verse 9 of John 20, verse 9, that said even when they saw the thing happen, they didn't recall how it must happen according to the Old Testament prediction. The, The rising of Jonah as a symbol, the various other things the Old Testament has to say had not registered. And when the event came, it was a surprise. In fact, the amazing thing is that those who should have known it best were those most stunned. The enemies, you know, the enemies of Jesus, when they heard about a missing body, they said right away, oh, this fellow said he was going to do something like this. They remembered. They had taken notes. But the ones who were supposed to remember were completely surprised. Well, we can never overemphasize the importance of the resurrection. In fact, I think many times, and this will sound strange to some of you, but we overemphasize Christmas. We overemphasize the beginning of the gospel message, tremendous as it is, of course. I don't take anything away from the wonder of the incarnation of God become flesh in the infant son of Mary. But Christmas is the great day because it's surrounded with sentiment and family togetherness and good things that are all kind of warm and fuzzy. We don't tend to overemphasize Calvary, I don't think. We don't tend to probably see as important enough the horror of the cross. But when we come on Easter and we celebrate the resurrection, there's no way in which we could ever give too much attention or too much emphasis to the greatness of what this day represents. It, it holds everything together. We've studied in Colossians in recent weeks how Christ as co-creator with God the Father sustains the creation and holds it together. Well, that's what Easter does. It holds the Christian faith together. It assures us that Christ's death was not an act in vain. It assures us that he lives what we could call an anti-death life, and he's ready to give that to us. And it assures us that here is an event on which we can anchor things because this miracle, the greatest of every miracle in all of the Bible, the crowning miracle of the Bible was not the crossing of the Red Sea. It wasn't the multiplication of the bread or walking on the Sea of Galilee. It was the resurrection of the body of Jesus from the dead. And this crowning miracle is sort of like the knot tied at the end of the rope, which enables us to hold on and know the Christian faith is true. One of the things I was taken by today as I was looking at John 20 and studying for this message, I want you to notice all the running that was going on in this passage. A week or two ago, there was a marathon held here in Lancaster County in New Holland. Marathons always amaze me, you know. I heard you could do this marathon in a relay. I think it was four people. There would have had to be 20 people in my team And then I probably wouldn't have held up my leg, because if I made it a mile actually running, I'm sure I would have died at the end of that mile. But there's a lot of running that goes on on Easter morning. Did you ever notice that? Nobody who got the word of the tomb just strolled after they got the news. They ran. I want you to see, if we had read Mark 16, you would have read of the women How they fled from the tomb is the wording of Mark. Luke 24, that I also didn't read, tells of two disciples (coughs) on the road of Emmaus. And the risen Jesus meets them on Easter evening. And finally, when he's revealed to them and they understand what happened, it says they hurried back to Jerusalem. Here in John 20, it's almost as if there are so many bodies hurtling back And fourth, it's like a spring track meet at the local high school. Everybody's running. And I've structured my thoughts around that today because I want you to see these three points. I want you to see a woman racing from the cemetery, two men racing to the cemetery, and then I want you to see the disciple who was stopped cold in his tracks when he entered the tomb. First of all, this morning, Mary Magdalene is the one who was racing from the cemetery. The different accounts, as they tell in the gospel, here's the kind of thing that a critic seizes upon and says, well, you know, one gospel says Mary Magdalene. John says Mary Magdalene went. She's the only one John mentions. The others say Mary and another Mary. The other says several women. There's really nothing very strange about that, simply a retelling of something, and one had detail that the other didn't have, but the one consistent personality in that of the women who went to the tomb was Mary of the village of Magdala. Now, you probably know that of any person in the New Testament, the role and the character of Mary Magdalene has been distorted and twisted in recent years. There are Hollywood films that like to portray her as a former prostitute, a woman of the streets. She's never called that in the Scripture. Of course, several years ago, the notorious Da Vinci Code book and movie did the worst thing of all and tried to portray that Mary Magdalene and Jesus were lovers, completely false and slanderous. The Bible says one thing about her background. It says she was one out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons. Now, what exactly that meant is a little mysterious. But it certainly says she had a complex of problems in her past. She was a woman with a past of some kind, whatever it was. And at one time, Mary was racing. She was racing down a blind alley towards oblivion, you might say. She found in Jesus Christ the message of God's grace and God's forgiveness and of peace with God, and it made her a new woman. And evidently, as a result of that, Mary's attitude towards Jesus, the messenger, was, Lord, you told me of a whole new life, and so every hour I have left in this life is going to be yours to command. I will serve you. I will help you. I will support you. And you can imagine how bitter it was then for Mary to experience the events of Jesus' arrest and his death, perhaps Seeing him, she did see him because we know she was at the cross. She saw his body all whipped and torn. She saw him dead, taken down, limp. She saw him carried to this tomb and put there. And she determined with other friends to come as soon as the Sabbath was over, as early as you could come on the day after the Sabbath had ended, to tend to him and show love and devotion to him. The bottom had fallen out of her world, and yet she was the last at the cross and the first to come to His grave that Sunday morning. Well, as she came, we know, and the different accounts tell us of the stone rolled away and of an angel messenger. As I put the accounts together, sometimes I'm not sure how much of the angel's message Mary actually listened to, whether she heard that message all the way through, he is not here, he is risen, go tell his disciples, or whether in the midst of it she was so startled, so stunned, so frightened that she just got up and ran knowing that she had to go summon the men of the disciples who might have the answers or might know what to do next because she didn't. Mary had a kind of single-minded devotion to Christ. She wanted to find an answer to this thing. She couldn't puzzle it out in her mind, and she just got up and ran. And women, you know, this wasn't a dignified thing. Women didn't run around in those days. There were no marathons. There were no, you know, out training before dawn and running around the block. A woman running was an unusual thing. An old man running was an unusual thing. But all she could do was run and say, I've got to find out. What's the answer to this? Where's my Lord? Where's his body? Because she could hardly believe yet that he was alive. There should be a sense in which every true Christian should have something of Mary's reckless abandon. Can we call it that? This desire to run to find the solution and say, I must see my Lord again. Where is he? Where have they put him? I must see him. I must be with him. So that sent her racing from the cemetery. But then in the important center of this text, we find Peter and John summoned to the grave by Mary. They hurry off, and John is the one, in case you didn't realize, he he calls himself the beloved disciple or the other one, being a little bit, you know, anonymous in his own account here. But it is Peter and John who go racing next to the cemetery. Now, John was a considerably younger man, we believe, and so it's natural that he, you know, if this is Troy DeBruin and Michael Rogers, guess who's going to get there first? (laughs) Troy's going to make it first. I always think of Peter and John as kind of the odd couple. Those of you who remember a few years back, Felix Unger and Oscar Madison, that comical pair. That was Peter and John, in a sense. They, they had one thing in common. They had both been fishermen, and they had both been called by Jesus to be disciples. Other than that, everything about them was different, age, character. Peter, you know, was the one who always jumped in bold and blustering and dominating every conversation. John was quiet and introspective and rather analytical. Well, they ran there, and the text says, John, it makes them – a mark of the fact, John, this was important as he emphasized, that he got there first and he glanced inside without going in. And then he stepped back as Peter was the senior man and he waited for Peter to come. Now, we know a little bit about these tombs. Some of you have been to Jerusalem. There's a tomb they show you there They're called the Garden Tomb. I've been there. It's not the tomb of Jesus, but it is probably a very good replica thereof a small cave that men had enlarged and hollowed out, probably with a stone shelf where a body was placed. They didn't use a wooden coffin. They would wrap the body and place it there. And then when the body had completely deteriorated, it would be buried somewhere, and perhaps the next family member would be in the same place a few years later. Well, they looked in, and the emphasis is there was no body. What they did see in the tomb were strips of cloth, grave clothes, strips of linen, it says, laying there, and the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head folded by itself separately. Now, this description is very precise for a reason because to John, the the positioning of those Strips of cloth there in the precise way that they were found were a great historical evidence. We know a little bit about what was done. They didn't practice the, the exact same practice of the Egyptians who mummified a body, but they did wrap it with linens if they had the opportunity, and we believe that was done quite hastily the night, uh, the Friday night before the, the Passover Sabbath would begin. They had to do it before dark. They weren't supposed to be handling a body on the Sabbath, so they came quickly, and John 19 tells us of Nicodemus, the wealthy man, bringing a large weight, a large jar of spices, myrrh and aloes, (coughs) mixed together. It says 75 pounds. That's a good weight. That's a weight that a man kind of staggers around carrying. They brought those spices and impregnated the cloth that they wrapped around Jesus with that. And we know from history what happened. The heat of the tomb would cause that to harden. And after 36 or 40 hours or so, it would be almost like the the main wrappings of the body were were similar to a kind of plaster of Paris, maybe not quite that hard, but, but definitely not soft cloth anymore, a kind of hard encasement around him. But we also know that it was frequent that they would take a cloth, and maybe that would be in some of the spices, but they would not wrap it tightly. They would put it about the head or face and leave it loose. Maybe you can think why. Because just as we go to funeral homes today, and we call it a viewing when we go, when a loved one has died and the body is there, so too did they do that. And, of course, decomposition would happen quickly. We wouldn't get into that, but there would be a very narrow window of time when you could come and remove that cloth from the face and and come and weep and grieve and remember this loved one at least for a day or two before you couldn't do that any longer. And that, I believe, in every sense, is what Mary and the others intended to do. As they came to the tomb, they wanted access to the body. They would have removed the face cloth they would have prayed, they would have wept as they looked on the face of Jesus. What if a modern video camera somehow had been in the tomb for the the resurrection to be recorded? What would the video camera have recorded? Did you ever think about that? This is a miracle of God. So we can only speculate but I would say to you that I, I don't believe at all that the camera would have recorded a man as if he were sort of awakening from sleep. You know, Jesus getting up the way you do, and if you're my age, you do it slower all the time and kind of stretching and oh, and getting yourself out of the bed. I don't think it would have been like that. If we understand the witness of the grave clothes. What the Scripture seems to be telling us took place is that somehow, by a miracle of the power of God, that new body, which was no longer just material molecules anymore, that new body of Jesus, how do we say it, vaporized through the clothing and left the clothing exactly where it was. That was what so impressed them. That's what they're trying to say here. The clothing was in the same position it had been. As they raced there and they looked in, there even was the headcloth sitting by itself as if the body had just vacated that resting place. Well, thirdly then, I want to look with you after all the racing back and forth. I want you to see as these two men came and John finally came inside to join Peter, how two men were stopped cold in their tracks. There's a little detail in John, one of these kind of things that the preacher loves to seize upon and tell you about. There's a lot of times or quite a few times here in this text that it says they saw something. And yes, there are actually three times, verses 5 and 6 and 8 where they got a look or they saw something. Interestingly, that very precise Greek language that the New Testament was written in uses three different words for the kind of seeing that went on. In verse 5, John looked in to the tomb. He got there, kind of braced at the mouth, got a look, a quick impression, a glance. Then in verse 6, it says Peter came, he went in. Peter's never hesitant in any situation. He went right on in. And it says he saw the grave clothes. And there's an interesting word. The Greek word is theoreo. You, could, you don't have to be a Greek expert. Theoreo, what does it sound like? Theorize. He started to theorize, to, to form ideas, to bring the facts together, to work this out in his mind, to ponder the evidence and say, what went on here? And then John came in. He entered the tomb finally. And verse 8 uses another word, ora'o. It says, he saw and he believed. And the word in the original language is a word which means comprehension, understanding, grasp of what you are looking upon. Not the glance, not the puzzled look. Oh, Now I understand. John looked, and it says he believed. He didn't just believe a body was missing. He believed the Lord had risen. His own text, and he's the writer here. Verse 9 says, he and Peter still didn't understand from the Scripture that he must rise. In other words, what he was believing here was simply the power of his own two eyes. He didn't even brought in, oh, yes, didn't Jesus say that was going to happen based on the sign of Jonah the prophet and so on. No, that all came later. Just based on the sight of his eyes, he saw, he comprehended, and this really would seem to be the moment in John's life when everything came to a full stop. And I don't know how long he actually paused there, but when he moved again, when he spoke again, and when he left that tomb again, he was a different man. You see, you can look at the evidence of Easter with a glance, and people do it all the time. Oh, the ritual of spring. Everybody loves Easter, it's happy, it's green. All you ladies, I saw my three granddaughters in one family troop in wearing matching dresses. Isn't Easter great? It's a wonderful time. We love Easter. We glance at it. We say, oh, yes, I think that has something to do with Christianity. Those Christians think Jesus is alive. Those people simply glance. There are other people who do look as Peter did and say, hmm, there's something here. I'm not sure what it all is. It, it couldn't possibly be what they say it is. It's got to be something. Well, I guess just the, the idea was that the memory, somebody stole the body, and, and the memory of Jesus and the legend of Jesus survived, and, and they had him in their hearts, and, and so they said he was alive. But then there's that third way of seeing that only the Christian believer has, who looks, who comprehends, and God sees his hold of you and says, look what I have done in real time and space. Not a legend. Not a fable. Not a, a great theological construct. Something happened in that tomb. A body was there that came back to life. And because it happened, I stop you in your tracks and you cannot be the same person ever again. Now, it might take years, you know, as you go through these different stages of seeing the resurrection. You might be in the first stage of seeing for a long time and maybe, maybe you never get out of it. Some people don't. You might even advance to the second stage and really start to puzzle about it and yet never quite find your way through that. But then there are those of you that come to that third stage, and you know God is as, as if a great hand has gripped you and held you, and you've been told, if this happened as it appears it did, then nothing else can ever be the same. You see, God doesn't ask us to believe the resurrection as if it was just an idea without evidence. Everything about it is is very much a factual, uh, what I was reading not long ago at a group of people that talked about true facts. Well, what other kind of facts are there? But the resurrection is a true fact. God gave us many proofs, and you've often heard Easter sermons that, that walk through all those. I'm not going to do that today, but just mention a minute. The, these undeserved, undisturbed grave clothes were one of the true facts. There's also the visible appearances that not just four or five or six or 12 people saw Jesus, but up to 500 people. The scripture says, "There's the inability of enemies who would have loved to put this thing to rest, if they just—they had the might of the Roman army, they had the greatest police force there was. They couldn't come up with a body, they couldn't disprove this. But then, maybe greatest of all is the true fact of these disciples' lives, who did not expect this thing to happen, and yet they found themselves turned around, changed." And all but John himself, all the original disciples except John, died a martyr's death for that true fact because they were convinced of it. Have you cared enough to get beyond the kind of seeing in stage one that the mass of American society pays to the Easter miracle? Or the kind of seeing in stage two where, well, we puzzle over it but never really figure it out? Have you stopped running in aimless circles? Have you stopped a race without any pattern to it in your life where, in, a, in effect, you're, you're running from yourself, just trying to get away from something and you don't even know what it is, to stop and take in the great difference that Easter makes? As I look out on this audience, I recognize that many of you wear, as I do, glasses on your eyes. Some of you wear contact lenses, so I can't see those. But many of you wear the glasses. We don't think about our glasses that much, do we? You you shine them up a little bit in the morning. You put them on your face. You basically leave them there. You don't fuss with them once you're used to it. But think how important they are. You see the whole world through them, right? If I don't have them, I'm in trouble. I can't read. I have to put books out farther than my arm goes to read the average page without these. But yet they're just there. They function. They do what they're supposed to do. Did you ever think of how the resurrection is like that? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is like God giving you a set of glasses in which to see the whole world in a different way. You see in the world meaning and comfort for loved ones as you lose them in this time. Yesterday, I called a woman from Maryland who was my secretary for many years, and I had learned just this week that she has liver cancer and won't live very long. How blessed it was to speak to this fine Christian woman, some words of comfort and words of love, knowing I probably won't speak to her again in this world, but I will see her again. And it's because of the resurrection. And because we see through our resurrection glasses, we have a verification of the cross. The cross wasn't an endeavor of Jesus that ended in failure, as if he went to die, and and he did die, but that was it, and the whole thing didn't succeed. It did succeed because he was raised again. The resurrection of Jesus means all the prophecies of the Bible have come true. The resurrection means this Lord lives right now, and he rules right now, as he promised, and he's coming. It means so many things. It's as if the planet Earth itself should have been stopped in its tracks, stopped in its rotation and axis to reverse or something. The resurrection is that important. Nothing has ever been more important in the history of the world. Than this act of power in by which God stops us and lets us see our lives and eternity in a whole new lens. That happened to a man named Tony Alessandro. Tony was originally one of those nominal church attenders. Oh, he paid, I suppose, the usual notice to Easter, like that first glance kind of look I mentioned. He came to church. He was there. He said the words. But then one day, Tony's beloved wife was killed in a car accident, and he was left with a young child to raise. And Tony was crushed by that. He he spent months after it. He said he felt like he was living in a black hole with no way out. All the meaning of his life and the joy of his life had just been sucked out of him. And then after a few months, it was Easter again. And Tony wasn't even sure he wanted to go to the church because he probably was bearing a little grudge against God, as people often are in those situations. But he went, and he was confronted with the Easter question. If Jesus really did conquer death, wouldn't that event affect all other events? And thank God the Holy Spirit was speaking to Tony Alessandro that Easter as never before. He thought about that. He believed it as John in the tomb believed it. And he walked out of that Easter service and testified to others later on, and I read of it in writing. But Tony said, having called that living Jesus his Lord, he said, because of the resurrection being true, I can say, once I was blind, but now I see everything else through the lens of the resurrection, and it's completely different. Do you realize every single human being on the earth is going to be brought to a halt one day? They're going to come to a screeching stop, as John and Peter did, in their tracks, and they're going to see the living Christ. Everybody. The problem is, for millions of people, it's going to occur after death, when they go into eternity and see the living Christ as their judge instead of their Lord. 1 Peter 1.3 promises this, to those of you who stop as John did, and see what John saw. We are born anew into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This, ladies and gentlemen, you can believe as a true fact. You can live confidently in the light of this true fact, no matter what you're going through right now, and you can die calmly, and confidently on the basis of this true fact because you will also live in the light of this. For Christ the Lord is risen. Indeed. Amen. Our Father, we need facts. We need handholds and footholds in this life. So many things are slipping away from us. Our economy feels like a great landslide going out from under our feet. Many things we believed which were permanent or seemed permanent about our country and our international situation are sliding and slipping away. Thank you for a true fact, for something which will not change, something upon which we can base all our hope. And so we praise you for Jesus, our living Lord. We praise you that our hope is not a mere wish or an idle idea or a theory, but we who believe that we shall be like him when we see him as he is, believe that upon promise and upon fact. We praise you for the living Christ. O God of power, do your work in us and give us this living hope today. In Jesus' name, amen.